Hey there, this is Brian. I'm the host of the Engaging Missions show. If you've found this show for the first time, I did want to take a second to let you know that this show is not currently in production. You're certainly welcome to check out all of the archives, but we don't have new episodes coming out at the moment. However, I did want to take a second to highlight one of the sponsors that sponsored the show a while ago. They're not currently sponsoring the show, but if you're looking for a place to invest in the kingdom, I'd recommend checking out Mega Voice Audio Bibles. You can find them at megavoice.com, or you'll find a link in the show notes, and I would encourage you to just check that out and see if maybe that's a fit for your giving. There's no compensation here or anything like that. I just wanted to highlight them. And with that, I'll get you back into the regular program. What if really knowing one simple truth about God could transform everything? We'll talk about that in more. This is the Engaging Mission Show, episode 188 with Kathy Slesser. Welcome to the Engaging Mission Show, where we are bringing missions home. Here's your host, Brian Ensminger. Thanks for joining us. We want to provide a way for thousands of people to hear a message, make a connection, and take action. This week, we're going to be talking about the power of recognizing how much God loves us, the transition from educator to developing curriculum for missions organizations, and also about emotional and spiritual health. As usual, we'll be also hearing a little bit from Brian Hogan's book, There's a Sheep in My Bathtub. We'll be reviewing some resources from Global Initiative that are intended to help us understand and reach Muslims. I've also got a little bit of an insight that I I captured this week that I'd like to share with you. And I have two opportunities for you to help me create a great show. And I'm going to talk about those right now. First up, I mentioned this last week. I'm looking for your input on an upcoming series on short-term missions. I want your help to create something that's really valuable. If you'd like to contribute to that and just share your thoughts about what might be valuable, visit engagingmissions.com slash STM. That's STM for short-term missions. Second, I'm looking to create a very special episode that includes your favorite verse. Every week I ask my guests about theirs or verses that are meaningful. I'm looking for yours as well. That would be engagingmissions.com slash favorite verse. Finally, I'd like to say welcome to Ryan. He recently subscribed to our email newsletter. If you'd like to do that, you can do that at engagingmissions.com slash newsletter. And Ryan, if you're listening to this, thanks so much for joining us, for subscribing to the newsletter. And I really hope and I pray that this episode that we have with Kathy would be really meaningful to you. All right. I am so excited today to have with me Kathy Slusser. She comes alongside ministries around the world to develop discipleship and leadership training to bring emotional, relational, and spiritual health to missionaries and ministry leaders. She's a writer of and also a curriculum development expert with a deep understanding and grasp of spiritual life formation and Christian inner life dynamics. She serves a number of missions organizations as a speaker, presenter, trainer of trainers, and also provides wait for it, personal counseling to Christian leaders. So Kathy, I I don't know what else to say after that. Welcome to the show. Thank you. You just made me sound really (laughs) smart. (laughs) Well, you know, it's, it's hard to sum everything up and especially all of that. I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on there, a lot of different things that you do. But before we start talking about the things that you do, 
I'd like to talk a little bit about how you got there, what it is that prepared you and the journey that got you there. So as I understand it, you were teaching in high school, then you left, and now that you, now you're constantly surprised. How did God call you into this and prepare you for what you're doing now? You know, I feel like I had two opportunities to really run into Jesus in very different ways. And the first one was when I was eight and I accepted Christ one day after telling a lie in Sunday school, and I felt really badly about it later. And so I asked Jesus into my heart. And then, you know, I feel like one of the things I've learned in the last several years is that as you pursue your faith, there's no way to do it without the influence of your family dynamics and your culture and your life experience. And so one of the things about my family growing up is that we're very intentional and you just always do your best. Well, I took that as a firstborn over-responsible daughter and (laughs) made it into a, you know, this passionate, I'm going to get this right and grow up into a responsible Christian adult Mm -hmm. life pursuit. So I didn't As I pursued a career and went into teaching, because I I joke that I was raised by caregivers, I I wasn't raised by media moguls or real estate developers, I was raised by caregivers, so your job is to help improve things in the world. So I went into teaching and felt very called to that by, by God. And in that journey and the years that followed, I wound up having a second experience with God. And really what happened that led me out of teaching was that during my eighth year of teaching, I just started to get longings for change that surprised me. And I'm, I'm a perfectionist, so I love a rut. I love predictability. So the idea of longing for change was really surprising. <laughs> so I kept asking God, is that you? Because that's not me. And it really started with this ache that began before the 2000-2001 school year of reading some books that were proposing that God cared just as much about my heart as much as he did about my obedience. Mm. And that felt stunning to me. I'd been raised in a family that was rich in love, but I had really approached God from just an obedience standpoint. And throughout that year, even though I still, I loved my students and I, I loved what I was getting to do as an English teacher. And I was a journalism teacher I, my heart was also breaking for a lot of the hurt that I was seeing in students' lives um, and things that learning Shakespeare and apostrophes wouldn't fix. And I, I actually had no idea what I was supposed to do at the end of that school year, but I knew I was supposed to leave, which was very surprising. Hmm. I joke that personal responsibility may have in many ways disappeared in our culture, but it never left the Slusser household. So the idea of leaving a career that I'd trained for without something on the horizon was really strange. And I, but I was so convinced that God was asking me to do that, that I did not sign a contract for the next year. And I just left and wound up working part-time for a, a, a private investigator. And then <laughs> I know I did transcription work for a private investigator and then wound up with this job as director of communications for a company that distributes humane animal handling equipment. So if anyone needs to know how to use cat graspers or snake tongs, <laughs> I can help them out. But during that 18 months with that corporation, I learned both graphic design and project management, and that was coming in on top of my English degree and secondary school teaching. 
And then I was invited by a ministry called International School Project to help develop a curriculum to use in Russia with junior hires to address drug and alcohol abuse issues and teen pregnancy issues. And the government had actually requested the curriculum and asked for it to have a Christian ethics base because Hmm. they just didn't have another way to go about tackling the problem. And I saw in this week of working with this amazing team on this, I saw ministry and education come together in ways I didn't even know existed until then. And God just put together a stunning story for the last part of 2002 that led to me beginning work in January of 2003 with Mission Aviation Fellowship with a new ministry thrust that they had called Learning Technologies that helped create training and resources for pastors and church leaders in isolated and remote contexts. So then I suddenly was using my education background combined with cultural approaches and traveling around the world to help groups develop curriculum and training. Wow, that, that's, that's incredible. You know, as I was looking through some of the biographical information, I definitely saw the heart of a servant and I was wondering where that came from. It sounds like that was a big part of your upbringing. Did I catch that right? Yes. So my dad has been in medicine for years as a clinical laboratory scientist. My mom was an aide in our school district. I grew up in a little mountain community in Southern California. And I watched both of them just give. And my mom eventually went back to school as well. She and I actually graduated together from university in 1992. Wow. And it was wonderful to celebrate. She had more honors ropes than I did, just so you know. (laughs) And um, we both started our teaching career at the same time. And she started teaching elementary school. I started teaching secondary. But this, this whole idea that really it's, it's, life is richer and better because we're to be thinking of, of others. And I will say that there are some broken ways that I took that into my faith later in being so intentional about my faith, but forgetting about the love part so that, you know, wrestling with verses like love the Lord, your God with all your heart, soul and mind and love your neighbor as yourself. I had some broken understanding of Christian humility that I kind of got myself into later. And that whole love your neighbor as yourself made no sense to me because I thought, well, maybe humility is if I hate me, then that's a little bit safer. So I don't know what to do about that love your neighbor as yourself part. So I'll just kind of try to love my neighbor and really didn't understand the significance of the as yourself and why God says that until I was about 42 and ran into a new life crisis that caused some reflection on that. So if you don't mind, I'd like to just camp out there for a second, because I think this is the first time that's been brought up on the show. And I'm wondering, how did God work you through that and bring you to a deeper understanding of where the love fits? I have a friend who has teased me a little bit about the confusion that I had about growing up in this home, rich in unconditional love. But somehow through the huge majority of my faith walk, I just missed it. And so the thing I would wrestle with was whether I was really loved by God. And honestly, I started to land on a perspective where it didn't matter if I was loved. It just mattered if I served and if I served well. And I relocated to Idaho from California in 2006 when Mission Aviation Fellowship moved their headquarters Hmm. 
And about 60 family units came up and relocated around the Boise, Nampa, Meridian area. And in this intentional pursuit in this service, by then I had been with them for three years, as soon as I was in full-time ministry, taking all of my perfectionism and all my I want to please God approach and I want to show how grateful I am and I want to be faithful and I want to work as a, as a servant you know, that's approved and a workman approved by God, I was surprised how much my heart started hurting after a number mm-hmm. of years and how empty I could still feel even when I was throwing all of me into this work. And I was also being stretched into things. So I started out working on the education side of this ministry, and that had some comfort in it, but it was still stretching with the cultural elements and the, and the world travel. But then there were management needs that I stepped into and leadership needs that I stepped into and human resources needs that I stepped into as I worked on a growing team. And everyone around me was quite confident that I had what it took to do this, but I was continually doubtful. And I joke that I finally came to a realization around 2010, 2011, where I realized that probably most of my theology was far more informed by Nike and Yoda than (laughs) by God. So the whole just do it (laughs) theology and there, you know, do or do not, there is no try. And just thinking, just keep ponying up no matter how many, how much hurt comes, how much disappointment, how much fear, just keep grabbing your bootstraps and keep going because that's what a good servant does. And in all honesty, it was a family crisis with my maternal grandmother, whose name Mm. is Mel. She and her husband moved about five miles away from me in 2011. And she had remarried at 70, married a gentleman who was 72. And I kind of joke that if anyone should choose to remarry at 70, take your time, choose wisely. You might still have many years (laughs) together. Um, but, and we really, as a family, we're fairly naive and we're just, we really like each other and we're friendly. And so, wow. Okay. Grandma met and married somebody within about two weeks, but okay, come on in. We love you. But he had quite a story of hurt in his life that we did not fully appreciate the ramifications of. And a lot of that started to play out in Mm. their later years together in their mid to late eighties as a lot of emotional and mental and verbal abuse. And when they moved close to me, I got a peek behind the scenes into a very broken relationship that I couldn't explain or understand because Mm -hmm. it made no sense to me why someone would want to hurt someone else and why someone would continue receiving that hurt And eventually the story unfolded to the point where she moved in with me in July of 2012. And I thought that I was getting this grandmother that I had always known who just loved me to the moon and back and who all the stories that I knew of her were these strong, survival, smart, joyful stories. And what I got was a pretty hollowed out pumpkin Mm. who could not be at peace because as she looked back at her life, all she could see were the things that she hadn't done right. And there was now no peace to be had. And my love could not comfort her Mm. and my family's love couldn't comfort her. 
And I got a picture of me plus 45 years if I didn't learn how to be loved. And the fact that my love couldn't bring her peace, nor could it bring her husband peace, was so heartbreaking to me that I actually had to say to the Lord out loud one day, oh my goodness, I, I tell you all the time why you shouldn't love me. I just ask how I should serve you. How much is that breaking your heart? If it's breaking my heart that these two humans don't believe how much I love them, what, what happens to your heart when I don't listen to that part? And um, he put together a series of events and experiences that really rewrote me in 2012. Wow. So I'm just wondering, because, you know, there are, there are probably people that are walking through this kind of thing. And I'm wondering if you, if you met somebody and you recognized that God was working in this way in their lives, is there something now that you would share with them that might help them on their way? I have started to ask people a couple of questions, um, and this is a shift for me too in my ministry work and my approach to people. Um, I think I was mostly trained to be a teller, tell people what to do <laughs> and tell people the right thing and and get them to change their behaviors. And I've really started to ask some questions now and and ask people to consider some things. And so one of the one of the questions is, what are you afraid love is not enough to do? If, if we really look at scripture, and this was one of the things that happened for me in 2012, was an opportunity to look at scripture anew and realize the filter that I'd had on when I read it had read out all of the emotion. Mm-hmm. And I think, honestly, um, I think that happens frequently in, in the body of Christ, at least in Western Christianity. Um, and actually in several other cultures where we are there, we are taught in such a way and directed in such a way that we really don't know what to do with emotions and we don't know what to do with pain because we are treating the Bible like God's little instruction book for life. And I've started to say, you know, water heaters need instruction books. Cars need instruction books. Humans don't come with instruction books. Um, but we have this book of 66 love letters. And if I was compelled by love, if I really look at scripture and I look at what God says about me, that I'm worth a holy son, that his words about being satisfied in the suffering of his son as he watches his anguish on the cross, is that moral obligation? Is that duty or is something being achieved that so delights the heart of the father is it love that is that is present there? And if it's love, then what kind of love and who is it for? And realizing God's great delight, the family's great delight, the Trinity's great delight in restoring us to them. And that idea that love is behind every action the Father takes toward us, what is it that we're afraid love is not enough to do in our lives now? And the New Testament makes it clear that we're to be compelled by love and not by fear. But I think the majority of us, honestly, are deeply compelled by fear that what gets mm-hmm. us out of bed in the morning is, oh, what will happen if I don't, dot, you know, dot, dot, dot. What will so-and-so think of me if I don't, dot, dot, dot. And instead, 
what does it look like to be invited by love and by grace? And really, I will just say too, I, I realized one day that I'd had two people in my thirties make comments to me about cheap grace. Oh, Christians and their cheap grace. You guys can just, you know, do whatever you want and then say you're sorry and everything's fine. And I remember thinking very clearly, oh my goodness, I don't want to be one of those. I'm going to show you guys that we're serious. You know, some of us are really serious about our faith and, and I'm going to be fully committed and sold out for, for God and realizing later that, man, if you know what grace really is, if you know how marvelously you were designed and what God's intentions were for you, if we look back at Genesis and look at the Father's heart in the garden and His desire for connection with us and His desire for us to have connection with each other and that emotionally rich environment, um, then what was lost is so much greater than just oops and entered the world and I need someone to set it right. We are far more marvelously designed than we ever imagined, but also far more deeply broken than most of us have ever dared to look. But then grace and the gospel comes and love comes and says, you are far more rescued than you ever dared hope. And so I would just, I, I love to ask people, what would it look like if you were compelled by love? What, what are you afraid love isn't enough to help you do, to be obedient, to love others well? Um, and what would you look like if you had been well-loved, if you had grown up thoroughly loved and thoroughly delighted in? Who would you be now? Um, and questions like, what do you think the look is on the father's face as he looks at you. If you'd asked me my whole Christian life, does it matter what you think the look is on God's face as he looks at you? And does it matter if you feel loved? Mm. I would have said no to both of those questions. I would have said, nope, it matters what the look is on my face as I respond to the gift of his son. And it matters that I know I'm loved because it doesn't matter if you feel it. You need to do the right thing even if you don't feel it. And now I would say those two questions are crucial, that it matters how I think he sees me and what his intention is toward me. And it matters if I feel his love because we are far more driven by emotion than we are by fact. We love to think that we act on facts. We don't. We act on our emotions. <laughs> wow, that that's incredible. Frankly, I'm... I, I'm not quite sure to take it where to take it from here. That was really deep stuff. You know, we probably do need to take a quick break. And then when we come back, maybe we'll shift our focus and talk a little bit more about some of the the stuff that you're doing in providing this kind of ministry to missionaries and ministry leaders. Wonderful. I'd like to take just a minute to tell you about another podcast that I think that you should check out. If you enjoy the Engaging Missions show, you definitely want to check out the Foundational Missions Leadership Moment with Scott McClelland. He's been a guest on the show, he's a friend of the show, and he's just recently finished up a series where he was on location in Thailand talking with some missionaries there about leadership. I thought it was a really, really interesting discussion. You can check that out at fxmissions.com. I think it's worth your time to at least give it a second to check it out. All right, we're back with Kathy Slusser. She's been sharing some really amazing stuff, some stuff that God's done in her life that has now equipped her to do some of the the things that God has her doing. Now, Kathy, I know that you provide lay counseling to Christian leaders. Before we start talking about that, I just want to know, how big is that need? 
Oh my goodness. It's tremendous. And it's one of the things that was a surprise to me. I have kind of joked that every day since I've left teaching has been a surprise because I wasn't one of the kids in second grade going, Oh, pick me, pick me. Can I be a missionary? I just (laughs) had no idea this was going to happen to me. And so part of the journey of surprises has been that much like working in teaching and then discovering my heart was breaking for the heart situations of my students in a lot of the family scenarios in which they found themselves. I had the same experience in missions that as I went along and was doing educational training and and resource development, I also was experiencing missionaries and ministry leaders who were hurting, who were wrestling with their own personal life issues, with organizational issues, Mm. with the ability, honestly, for missionaries to get along with one another on the field. I've had multiple people who work in, in member care and missions who told me that pretty consistently, you know, the number one thing that brings missionaries home is an inability to get along with each other, Yeah, which is, is heartbreaking and really discovering how challenging situations, painful situations squeeze out all of our default instincts and all of our default beliefs. You know, we have this gap between our stated beliefs, but, and then our, our functional beliefs, how we actually (laughs) behave. So I joke, you know, on a good day, I'm a great draft pick for Jesus, (laughs) but you introduce some pain and some things start to fall out of me that really don't look like I've been influenced by the gospel. And that is true for really missionaries and ministry leaders. And you take all the stress that we experience on a daily basis, and then you put it into a different culture. You put it into people functioning in a different language. You put it into high stress situations where maybe we feel pressed to deliver, you know, certain kinds of numbers and stories to people back home and our hearts just start to hurt and, and leaders and missionaries are often out of safe places to take that hurt. One of the things you mentioned was the the desire to bring those stories back. How much tension do missionaries and ministry leaders often feel to maybe elaborate on the stories or maybe only share part of the story because they know that their support or their the their supporters, their partners are looking for those kinds of results? You know, I like the way that you asked that question because, you know, there's the, do I feel pressed to elaborate and maybe, you know, kind of pad my numbers a little bit about my, you know, how many churches I planted or how many converts Mm -hmm. we had, or do I feel pressured to keep it happy? And I think that probably the majority of people with whom I've spoken, the pressure is to keep it happy because a lot like we just do in life when we want things to be stable is we tell each other, keep smiling, keep smiling all Mm. the way from a dear friend who was a missionary wife and, and a pastor's wife who, when she lost her father, when she was five years old, remembers a neighbor saying, okay, now remember you need to be strong for your mom. Mm. And so that starts to inform her whole life perspective of, I can't be weak. I can't let anybody down. And, you know, and that's not what that neighbor intended, but in our desire to help bring peace to others, I don't want to worry my family back home. I don't want to worry my supporters. I want them to know that their investment is, is working and, 
and doing what they expect because we really expect, honestly, that our supporters are investing in us so that they can see people baptized and churches planted and leaders trained. When in reality, I think the healthiest investments and the, the supporters that care about us the most are investing in us because they know that both relationally and from a work perspective, we're making a difference. But there's not infrequently missionary training that says, don't put the messy stuff in the letters home, put, mm. put the cheerful stuff in there. And, and if you don't have an organizational structure that lets you hurt and really just in general, even as believers, I think we're not good with one another in pain yeah. as humans. When you're hurting, I hurt. And so I need you to stop hurting so that I stop hurting. <laughs> so what can I, <laughs> yeah. what can I say to, you know, put maybe a bandaid over your bullet wound that I can now pat you and say, Oh, well, you know, God works all things out for the good of those who love him. So aren't you better? You know, God's good, right? Right. So, so you're okay. So now I can be okay. And we, we start placating with scripture and with Christianese that then actually adds to the pain. So uh, you've definitely highlighted some of the the challenges and, you know, for the people listening right now, we care about missionaries. We care about missions. We want to see missionaries be effective and healthy and fully equipped. Are there any telltale signs that we can look for that might inform us that we need to up our prayer life or try to provide a safe place for them, not to take, you know, take the place of pastoral care or anything like that, but mm-hmm. just to, to be there for people? That is such a good way to ask the question because really it's, it's not even so much telltale signs as making yourself a safe person. How can I be a safe person that in my contacts with my missionary who I want to love like a brother or sister, I want to love like a friend, can I be a safe, vulnerable place for them where really the gift of the me too, that's what empathy is, is I hurt too, you hurt too. Oh, I have joy in this too. You have joy in this too. But being real and honest with them. And so asking questions like, how are you doing? How is your heart? Asking beyond the work. I have a friend who has some children with with developmental disabilities and some comments came up about how so often we ask questions about those children with special needs in developmental terms. Are they walking yet? Are they talking yet? Are they feeding Mm -hmm. themselves yet? And really, what would it look like if you said, what have you seen in their personality that you're enjoying? You know, what, Mm -hmm. what makes them laugh? That kind of thing. The same thing is true for us. We get into work mode and function mode and it feels very easy to just ask about work. But I think it's a gift to missionaries and ministry leaders to say, how are you? How is your heart? And really it may take some time because some of them are afraid that they'll be sold out for lack of a better word. If I show any cracks, what if somebody you know, reports me, you know, that, that, that I said I'm, I'm hurting in my marriage or that I'm, I'm, I'm worried about my kids. What if somebody feels like they have to take action right away? And really I, one of the other things for me that's changed in what I thought adult Christianity would look like, which if you'd asked me when I was a kid, I would have said, (laughs) Oh, well, you learn the list of things to do and the list of things you don't and do that list and tell everyone else about it. (laughs) Um, I now, really 
just see the gift of the Holy Spirit at work in our empathy and in our ability to be with people and let them talk without judgment. They know when they're doing something wrong and they know that it's risky to share and to be a safe place to just process out and not have something fixed right away. Often the greatest gift for anyone who's in pain or struggling is to hear themselves say something out loud Because when we keep it in our head and we try to fix it, we can make all kinds of sense in our brain of really crummy stuff. I've kind of joked about the mental and emotional gymnastics we can do to make bad choices or deep pain make sense. All the way from, I mean, conversations that I've had with with missionary wives who, you know, were sexually abused as, as children and teenagers by family members and they come to Christ later in college and have this, you know, experience of forgiveness, but they're still carrying this shame, but they don't know what to do with it. And if they share it with somebody, often the response from other women has been, well, isn't it good that God let that happen to you so that now you can minister to other women who've experienced that? And so you take that perspective of God and maybe now you marry a pastor's son and you're going to move into this great, you know, life of service and you're going to go be a missionary and you're going to go work on the field. And, and I'm supposed to be happy about a God who arranged this abuse so that now I can be useful to other women who've been abused. Mm. And it really distorts our picture of God. You know, what, what kind of good dad, you're telling me this is a good father and he's my, he's my good dad, but he set this up and I live with this shame that I now shouldn't be bothered by so that I can come alongside other women. And I've gotten to work with women through the experience of saying, you know, God never intended that. That is, that is brokenness that hurt you. That is sin that came and hurt you. And we have an enemy that just is so evil. And I am so sorry. And God can certainly redeem things out of brokenness, but he did not arrange that so that you would be useful to him later. And I've watched weeks go by where there's this deconstructing of these kind of really broken approaches that we can have in our faith of saying, this is how God wants to use pain. And so he orchestrates pain. And I've watched this journey of having the foundation get knocked out about, okay, I don't have to live anymore in this confused state where I'm supposed to love this good father who arranged abuse for me to this point of realizing that is not what he arranged. Brokenness happened but he rescued me and he loves me. And I've watched a woman's face light up from the inside out. The most significant change in a person's countenance I've ever seen in this moment of realization of I was saved to be a daughter. I am Mm. beloved. And because I am beloved, now there is no shame attached to this. And I can tell my story and God will use it and he can use me but he didn't save me because he needs me. He saved me because he loves me. And now I'm invited into the family business of search and rescue for other broken people. Wow. 
as you're sharing that, you know, one of the things that I keeps, keeps coming back to me is that what you're describing is a very individual ministry that, you know, you're talking with a person or you're working with a person, you're being a minister to an individual, but you also work with groups around their curriculums. And that doesn't seem like a very individual activity. How are you able to bridge the gap and help organizations build a curriculum or do that kind of thing and and sort of walk on both sides of the fence, if you will? It is such a wonderful experience as an educator to be able to help bring transparency and heart into training curriculums and into discipleship curriculums. So one group in particular that I spend a significant amount of my time working with called Aphesis Group Ministries has an inner life discipleship process called Untying the Knots of the Heart. And I have loved helping design that curriculum because it is about 50% content the way that we think of of curriculum. So Mm -hmm. reading and answering some questions and doing some reflection. But the other 50% of the experience is a group time together where people have agreed to some norms and values of high confidentiality, high honesty and openness to the degree that they're comfortable, agreeing to not fix one another, agreeing to value wrestling, to let our hearts wrestle with some new truths. One of the, you know, things that I learned from the time with my grandmother, besides now having this really high value on saying it matters that I learn to be loved and feel loved, not just know it because knowing it actually doesn't comfort our hearts at all. (laughs) We need to feel it. Yeah. And imagining the father's look on his face toward me. The other thing was roll around a new thought. It's okay. I don't have to accept something entirely new, but can I roll around a new thought? Can I wrestle with it? And to value one another as we wrestle and say, my goodness, you know, I, I always thought this way. I always imagined that in Romans 14, where God, you know, where, where Paul is describing one man values this day, one man values another, one man eats this food, another man eats this food. I'd always in my head kind of finished all of that scripture with, but one of those guys is right. And if I just study enough, I'll know which guy's right, and then I'll do it right, and I'll tell everyone <laughs> else about it. Um, you can hear the the firstborn over responsible daughter in me yeah. <laughs> trying to get everything right and be a perfectionist. I'm in constant recovery from that. Um, but really what Scripture says, you know, this moment to roll around a new thought and look at Scripture again and say, oh, my goodness, actually, what that says is, so love one another well in this treat one another well, hold one another up, love each other well. Oh my goodness, Mm. you didn't pick sides in this. And so to be able to bring both grace and truth together in training and help ministries create environments where either ministry teams or groups of individuals can come together with some people who can guide them through some learning and processing that now helps bring them along in both leadership skills, but also in valuing and understanding what to do with their emotions and the role that emotions and pain and our identity and communication play in 
in how we function together, both with one another and as we outreach to people who don't know the Lord yet. So I think I might have just heard the answer to this, but I'm, I'm wondering, is there one thought that you think that we might be better for rolling around in a little bit? You know, I, I love this thought, actually, is particularly from a mission standpoint, the comment that I hear often when I tell people about places where I get to travel, and I've been to 30 or so countries, hmm. you know, as soon as I say certain names like Beirut, or if I say names of places in East Asia, right away, people are like, oh my goodness, I don't, that's, you're so brave. <laughs> and, you know, it's not hard for me to get on a plane in Boise and get off the plane somewhere else in the world, in Central Asia or the Middle East or whatever. The scariest thing and the most glorious thing is taking the gospel to the remotest parts of the human heart mm. to consider if I open certain doors, if I look at certain things, if I look at my story, how my family has shaped me, how my culture has shaped me, how, what it's looked like to have a fallen enemy who is coming after me, what it's looked like to be just shaped by my own brokenness, my poor decisions and the poor decisions of others that have affected me. What would it look like if I actually let the gospel go to those parts of my heart? Mm. Who might I be if I actually lived with a peaceful heart? And the head of Aphesus Ministries said to me several years ago that, you know, after years in ministry, one of the things that he's realized is that the most life-changing thing anyone can bring into a setting is a peaceful heart. And it doesn't mean that our heart doesn't ever hurt. It doesn't mean we don't ache for certain things. But a peaceful heart that can look peacefully both at my pain and my desires and process those with the Father, that there's nothing I can show him that shocks him or undoes his love. John Lynch's New Testament gamble piece that he wrote years ago is so glorious. There's nothing that we can do that undoes the Father's love, that adds to it or takes from it, and that we are delighted in in this moment, even as he as he changes our hearts and, and grows us and helps us conquer, you know, sinful patterns and change our instincts and our default beliefs that, that it is so safe and wonderful. What would it be like if I actually let the father in? Wow. That that's great. And I, I really appreciate you sharing your heart on that. I definitely didn't prep you for that, but I, I really appreciate that. We, we're just about out of time. So I just have maybe two or three more questions that I wanted to touch on before we tie a bow on this. The first one is just, you've shared a lot of stuff. Is there maybe also a book or a resource that you'd like to recommend for our listeners? There are a number of things that I just <laughs> love. I will just say for anyone that wants to have some great conversations with missionaries or with just friends or, and the ability to look at their own heart, a very accessible book that is very well written is Kitchen Table Counseling by Muriel Cook and Shelley Volkart. I hope they have those authors right. And Rare Leadership by Marcus Warner and Jim Wilder is another one that 
it's so wonderful. We have, you know, so I'm the daughter of a scientist, so I get mm. excited about all these brain things that we're learning about <laughs> how, how our emotions work, where our brain lights up when certain things happen. And so emotionally healthy leadership and what it looks like to lead with us being emotionally engaged with ourselves and our teams is wonderful. And, you know, a great piece to just watch if someone wants to look at a video, it's not new, but it is so good, is John Lynch message on YouTube that you can find called the the Two Roads Message. And so you can just Google John Lynch Two Roads Message and it will come up and it's part of the True Face Ministry. Wow. Good stuff. How can we best pray for you? I, man, I love this question because he really, here's the best answer is you can pray that I too remember to drink my own (laughs) (laughs) Kool-Aid. That's great. (laughs) I, I am so wired as an instinct to think I, I'm out of my depths. I'm out of my league. And I think it's partly a function of coming to missions when I was 33, Mm. you know, rather than, you know, being raised overseas or something. But I'm just so surprised to find myself here. And God is so gracious. But times when I get worn down and I'm often talking with people about pain, people who have lost children to suicide, people whose marriages are hurting, people whose ministries are, are hurting. And I am an empathy sponge, which makes me great at what I do in being present with them. But I forget sometimes to unload that well with the father and then to practice trust in my own life. And the last six or seven months have been a wonderful and painful, but also wonderful reminder to trust, particularly in the areas of finance for me and of my heart. Mm-hmm. So just prayer that I would remember grace, just like I tell everyone else. <laughs> And if we could maybe turn that around, if you could challenge us to do just one thing in the next seven days, what would that be and why? I think really asking yourself, so that scripture about love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself, consider how you love yourself. And in that, it's not some, you know, creepy or abstract. Wow. You know, I, I'm, I'm good. I'm, I'm good enough. I'm smart enough. And (laughs) gosh, darn it. People like me. Yeah. It is to look at scripture and what the father says about us. I sing poetry over you as you sleep. I, I treasure you. I, I delight in you. I see you as I see my son and I'm not covering you with my with my son so that I can make you palatable, but I love you. And I went to the ends of the earth for you. And that love your neighbor as you love yourself part, when we finally learn to be loved and believe that we are loved and can rest in the father's love and trust that it changes us, we will love others so much better. And so really I have a dear friend who said that that part of that verse is very true. We will always love our neighbor as we love ourselves. So if we are contemptible with ourselves, if we're disgusted with ourselves, if we think that we are just wretched, lost, hopeless failures, 
or just not worthy of love, worthy of service, but not worthy of love. That is exactly how we will love and see the people around us. We will do it with contempt and with shame and with disgust. If we are resting peacefully in the Father's love, we will love the image bearers around us immensely because we will see the reflection of God in them the way that the Father sees it when He looks at us. Wow, Kathy, such deep and really, really good stuff. For those of you that are listening, we will have links in the show notes so you can connect with Kathy or connect with the resources that she mentioned. Those will be at engagingmissions.com slash Kathy Slusser. That's K-A-T-H-I-E-S-L-U-S-S-E-R. Now, Kathy, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Brian. This has been a joy to talk with you. When we left Brian Hogan last week, he was praying, God, now what? As he was waiting for the iron gates to open so that he and his family could get their visas and go to Mongolia. This week, we're going to find out what God did. And without making you wait any longer, we're going to just shift right to Brian Hogan reading from his book, There's a Sheep in My Bathtub. I had an urge to call inside on the intercom. Without asking the stunned guard who was right next to it, I walked over and punched the buzzer. A male voice answered, What? This is Mr. Hogan. I was instructed to return at two o'clock to see the ambassador. It is now half past three. You need to open this gate and let me in, I said with sudden confidence. Um, five minutes, he sputtered in reply. I could see his face in the window across the courtyard. I held up my wrist and pointed to my watch. Five minutes, I repeated firmly. I saw him nod. Exactly five minutes later, to the amazement of all those waiting, myself included, the gates swung open. You could have knocked the whole crowd over with a feather. Not one of us had been allowed inside that whole day. So Brian Hogan had prayed, and then he felt like he was supposed to place a call, and that call started to reveal to him that things were already in motion. And I want to camp there for just a second, because I also have something that God's been revealing to me that's really similar to this. It's something that I've known for a while, but it's just kind of coming back up. And that's the idea that vision always leads provision. So we have vision first, and then God begins to reveal to us how he's going to provide. And this has kind of been coming up because, as you know, if you've been listening to the show for a while, I've been taking a course on audio engineering. I'm wanting to expand what I'm doing to support other podcasters, authors and speakers, ministries, businesses that want to either have a podcast or an audio book. And in the last couple of weeks, I've had a couple of great opportunities to do more of what I'm doing. As I've mentioned before, I am in the middle of recording one audiobook, and now I've had another author contact me to see if I can help him, and we're kind of trying to work some of that out. I'm also helping launch Scott McClellan's second podcast. I've talked about that before, and I've had some other people contacting me and, you know, some opportunities to connect with other, other podcasters. And then just this week, I've had some additional provisions that came in. And I'm looking at that and going, wow, there's this vision that requires some resources. And God's beginning to show me ways that he's providing some of that. And I just want to offer that to you as some encouragement, not to look at me and, you know, how great is that, but more to, to remember 
that if God has shown you something that he wants you to do, he has a plan to provide whatever resources you need to get that done. Those resources may come through work. They may come through donations. They may come through working with other people who have those resources. I don't propose to tell you how he's going to do that. But just remember, the vision leads the provision. We don't wait until we have the resources unless that's God what God has told us to do. We take the vision and then we say, okay, now show me how you're going to provide for that. And that's my encouragement for you. I think it fits with what Brian Hogan is doing as well when his family left for Mongolia. And maybe that speaks to your life as well. Here's a taste of what's coming up on the Engaging Mission Show. I really started to get a heart for foreign missions while I was a high school student in South Florida and didn't really know what that looked like. So I started praying and asking God where I should go. And I felt like he told me to go on vacation and uh, I wasn't really sure why. So, <laughs> so I, took, I took a vacation and went to a whole bunch of national parks in the U.S. and just packed up a truck and went with some friends. And I remember being on the side of this mountain in the state of Washington and I was looking out over all these other mountains and asking God what he wanted me to do. And I remember him just speaking really clearly to me and saying, there are mountains that are 10 times this size and people there don't know to praise me for it unless you go. If you enjoyed that, you won't want to miss a single episode of the Engaging Mission Show. Subscribe in iTunes or Stitcher to have it delivered automatically. Visit engagingmissions.com slash subscribe. That's engagingmissions.com slash subscribe. I really want to be, see you be able to connect with Muslims and share your faith with them effectively. And one of the challenges that you might have, I know that I have it, is not necessarily knowing what people believe. And it's okay to be inquisitive and to ask questions and to learn one-on-one. I think that's a great thing. It's also interesting sometimes and, and important to to know what people believe, or at least have a little bit of an understanding. And today I want to talk about what Muslims believe about a couple of things. Now, this is coming from resources made available by Global Initiative. I am in the middle of a fundraiser for them. I'm praying and believing God for $4,000 to help fund their ministry. We're using these resources because they're valuable. And also to give you a picture of what Global Initiative is doing and making available in the body of Christ. So let's say you're talking to somebody and and they're a Muslim, and the topic of angels come up. Do you have any idea what they might believe about angels? Well, according to the Quran, the devil was created by, created from fire, man from clay, and angels from light. They believe that angels have life, speech, and reason, that they have no carnal desire or anger, and that their food is celebrating Allah's glory. Their drink is proclaiming His holiness, their conversation is commemorating Him, and that their pleasure is in worshiping Allah. Angels are also thought to be inferior to human prophets because they were commanded to prostrate themselves before Adam, according to the Quran. They also believe that angels intercede for men and act as guardians, that each Muslim assumes that there are two recording angels to tend to him, one to record his good actions and the other the evil actions. And this also comes from the Quran. There are a number of archangels, Michael, the patron of the Israelites, and, and a couple of others. Now, why might this be important? Well, 
if they start talking about angels, it's important to understand that they have a perspective that might be a little bit different from yours. And while there's no way that what I shared in the course of a couple of minutes is going to fully equip you to have a deep conversation, maybe there's enough here that you can start that dialogue and then just begin to explore and to be interested in what they believe in a way that also allows you to share what you believe, to demonstrate that you care about them as a person, and to to consider praying with them and offering up a prayer for them that God would begin to reveal himself to them because Muslims do want Allah to reveal himself to them. But what we can do is pray that God would do that. We hear of Muslims having visions of a man in white, and we believe that these kinds of things can happen. Muslims believe in the supernatural and We also believe in the supernatural because we believe in a supernatural God. We can find that point of commonality in the kinds of things that we believe in, and then we can shift that and talk about those bridges to the gospel, and in that, maybe plant a seed that the Holy Spirit can use to lead them to Christ. Thanks to Kathy Slusser for being with us, Brian Hogan for making his book available, Global Initiative for making their resources available for free and to you for joining us. Show notes are available at engagingmissions.com slash Kathy Slusser. That's K-A-T-H-I-E-S-L-U-S-S-E-R. That's where you'll find ways to connect, comment, and share. Make sure you come back next week. We'll be hearing from Rick Preado about how God's been moving recently in his life. And as a special treat, we're actually catching him as he's waiting for a plane to go on a missions trip. The best way to make sure you don't miss that is to subscribe using your favorite podcast app. Visit engagingmissions.com slash subscribe. And if you have a story of how you have been equipped, challenged, or inspired through the Engaging Missions show, we'd love to hear from you. Send us an email to feedback at engagingmissions.com. Thanks for listening to the Engaging Mission Show. You can find more great content like this along with show notes by visiting engagingmissions.com or by subscribing to the show in iTunes or Stitcher. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll be back next week.